Let me mention once again our ladies, ladies' Bible study on Tuesday night. The ladies are studying a book, That I May Know Him. I think you'll enjoy that. And this is really, I think, what we're doing as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. This is the life of Christ, and it's important that we do know him, know what he was like, know what he taught, and that's the most important information that you're ever going to receive in all of your life. Now, if you'd open your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Uh, today in our study of Matthew's Gospel, we're, we're going to the second part of a sermon that I began last week entitled, The Sun Gives Sight and Sound. These are two miracles that we find here in this portion of Scripture in our reading, and these are the last of two miracles in a series of miracles that Jesus performed right after he had preached the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't imagine that when we first started studying the Sermon on the Mount uh, about a couple of years ago and spent all of our time uh, much time in that particular study that you would have thought that it would have this much impact on Matthew's narrative. It was just one sermon, one time, and perhaps one day or two days of Jesus' life, and yet we found that that sermon overshadows all of the activities that we have here in verses or chapters 8 and 9. These two chapters are given for powerful support of Christ's kingship. And they're a demonstration of his authority, why he had such authority when he spoke. And his teachings were much different than the people were used to. And it would take very, very strong persuasion for them to leave the religion that they had grown up with. And this is exactly what we see taking place here. And and they really had to do this. They must leave that religion that they were in in order to be pleasing to God and to be a part of Christ's kingdom. In verses 16 and 17 of this chapter, we saw that Jesus would not allow any mixture of the gospel with the pharisaical system. And these people had to leave it because the gospel itself stands alone. Uh, the, The pharisaical teachings, teachings by works that a person can get into heaven by what they do, that is incompatible with what Jesus teaches. Christ stands alone as the only hope for a person to go to heaven. Now, some people don't like that exclusivity. We hear today about all the different religions of the world and all the religions have their worth. But true Christianity is exclusive of all other religions. And if you're going to teach Christ Christianity, and that seems a little bit strange to say that I would say teaching Christ Christianity, but if you're going to teach what he taught, then you're going to have to tell people that there is no hope for heaven, there is no eternal life without him. And Jesus said as much when he said, no man comes to the Father but by me. And that is the same as saying that there is nobody who goes to heaven. There's only one way. There's only one path that you can get there. It's the exclusion or to the exclusion of all other paths. You must come by faith in the blood of Christ because that is the only way. And as a demonstration of that, all that you would need to do is just look at verse number 6 in this chapter because there it says, The Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And the only way that you're ever going to get into heaven is to have your sins forgiven. And Christ is the only one who can forgive sins. And so we have in these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, nine demonstrations of divine power that prove to us that Jesus is God. He is the king from heaven, 
And all who are going to enter into his kingdom must receive him as their Savior and Lord. And in the history of all the religions of the world, there has never been these types of demonstrations. You can search the world over, and you'll not find any religion that can substantiate its claims by miracles. There's only one, and that's Christianity. But I also need you to understand something else, and that is that miracles alone are not going to lead you to Christ. And I want you to keep that in your mind because we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. At the end of the message, we'll talk about that again. So let's look at these scriptures, and we're going to read about these last two miracles in the series of nine. Then we'll have a short review of the last message, and then we'll talk about a little bit more about the importance of what Jesus did here. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 27. Let's stand once again for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Matthew 9, verse number 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his, frame, uh, his fame in all that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Speak to our hearts today through this. And Lord, uh, just open us, open our hearts so we might see what, what you would have us to know today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, if you have your listening sheet this morning handy there, uh, you might want to note the previous points of the first part of the message. And I'm just going to very briefly touch on these. We don't have time to go back into all of that, but I do want to just uh, tell you what we talked about in the sermon last week. The first part was about the common condition, and the common condition is the issue of blindness. There are two blind men that came to Jesus. And they were ju these were just two men among the hundreds and hundreds of blind people that there were in Israel. If you wanted to categorize the miracles that Jesus performed and you were trying to find out which condition did Jesus heal the most people from, it would be blindness. From congenital defects to infectious diseases to accidents and acts of war, there were many causes for blindness. Now today, with some very simple antibiotics, as such as we talked about last week in putting antibiotics in the eyes of children when they're first born, we can prevent a lot of blindness. But they didn't have the, blind, uh, the antibiotics in those days, and so there were very, very many people in Israel that were blind. And if we didn't have these antibiotics, we would perhaps see the very same condition today that they saw. But this was common among those people. There were very many blind people. We also talked about the pleading confrontation. In verse number 27, the two blind men were following Jesus, and they cried after him. And we noticed how that often in Scripture, you'll find two blind people together. 
they often would hang out together. And that's the source of Jesus saying, if the blind follow the blind, then both will fall into the ditch. So here are two men following Jesus, two blind men. They're shrieking as they followed him. The word of God says that they were crying after him. And that word crying there actually means that they were weeping and they were wailing. Uh, We would use the word shrieking with unintelligible speech. And I would say that they were so strongly pursuing Jesus and they were so anxious for him to help them that they were beside themselves. So they continued to shriek, trying to get his attention, and it really must have been quite a spectacle. You and I would probably think that it was terribly annoying to have these two men following you, crying out after you, and Jesus would probably just turn around and help them just to shut them up and to get rid of them. But we notice what these men did because in the midst of their shrieking, there was some intelligible words because they said, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. So they did something that no one else had yet done. They made the messianic connection. The messianic connection. I mean, with all the hundreds of miracles were done, uh, that were done, and with that great sermon on the mount that Jesus preached, a manifesto of the kingdom of God, these two men are the first ones in Matthew to make the connection. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel account that this title is used for Jesus. They called him the son of David, and that meant that they understood his kingship. Now, earlier at the beginning of Matthew, there's a genealogy given, and that proves the lineage of Jesus. It tells us there that he was descended from David, that Christ is in the succession of kings that come from David, and that Jesus Christ is actually the last in the line of those kings. He is the last king that will sit upon the throne of David. And that's a fulfillment of prophecy. We find that in the Old Testament. It speaks often about this, that the Messiah would come through the line of the kings. And the Jews understood that. When Jesus asked the Pharisees later, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Or who who do you say that the Christ is? And really, that's just another word. Christ is another word for Messiah. That's the Greek form of the word Messiah. So he said, who do you think that the Christ is? And the Pharisees answered that question, he is the son of David. And so son of David is just another term, a common term that they use to describe the Messiah. Now here, these two blind men shouted this out, something that no one had ever said before. They said, Messiah, they recognized it, Messiah, have mercy on us. So they made the connection. And by that, we understand why Matthew chose these two particular blind men. Jesus healed many, but he chose to tell us about these two because it's Matthew's purpose in the gospel account to prove the kingship of Christ, to prove his authority. And so these two men recognize the authority. Now, fourthly, we discuss the hopeful expectation. And the hopeful expectation is have mercy on us. And from reading the Old Testament, we know that the Messiah would have a heart of mercy. Someone asked me a few weeks ago if I could give them some specific scriptures that tell us that Jesus is God. And there are many such scriptures in the Word of God. But if you want to do a little bit more investigation, such as we're doing here, you'll find that every one of these miracles is for that purpose. They show us that Jesus is God. So there's a reason here 
why these two men cry for mercy. They expected it. They expected this from the Messiah because according to Scripture, that is the Messiah's character. 33 times in the Psalms, it says, His mercy endureth forever. And the 136th Psalm, 26 times in 26 verses, it says, His mercy endures forever. And so what would these two blind men expect? Isaiah gives us the answer. Isaiah 35, verse number 5, where it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Speaking of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. So that verse refers to the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And when the king comes, what will he do? Well, among all the things that he would do, What do we think that the two blind men would be thinking about? What would they hope for? Well, this scripture would come back to their minds. Isaiah 35, verse number 5. When the Messiah comes, he will have mercy on blind people. He will open their eyes. So, if Jesus is the Messiah, he should be able to open their eyes. And so they believed it, and they asked for mercy. And not once do we find them saying here, heal us from blindness. Why didn't they ask that? Well, it's because their hearts were in tune with Jesus. Both of them knew what the other meant by this. Mercy in this context is mean that it means that they're asking to be healed from blindness. So they followed Jesus. They're still shrieking. They're calling after him. They followed him right up to the house where he was going, right through the door, right on his heels, and went into the house with him. And finally, Jesus turned to them, and he says, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And so that brought us to, fifthly, the faith-filled realization. He said, believe ye that I am able to do this. Now, we look at the faith-filled realization. They said, yea, Lord. Just two words after that constant barrage as they followed him. They answered his question with, yea, Lord. And do you think that they said, yes, Lord, because they were saying it like, yes, sir? Or they called him Lord because that was simply an expression of its dignity. I don't think that that's what they had in mind. It was far more than that because with all the feeling that they could have, with all the emotion, with all the understanding, with all the forcefulness, with all the anticipation they could put into it, they said, yes, Lord of our lives, yes, Savior and Redeemer of our souls, we do believe it. And in other words, we have nothing less here than saving faith. That is a saving faith response. That's admission to the power of God, to the authority of God. There's faith for healing here, but more importantly, we find here faith for salvation. And they realize what too many people today are missing. They said, Son of David. And that means they understood that he is the king, he is the Lord of every single person who enters into his kingdom. Today, we have too many preachers that are telling people, well, lordship salvation, that's unbiblical. All that you really need to do is to receive Christ as your Savior. You never really, really have to worry about surrendering to him as your Lord. But could you imagine that these two blind men thought that way? No. If they thought that way, they never would have been healed. They wouldn't have been saved. Not everybody went into the house. They heard the men calling out and repeating this, Son of David, have mercy. Son of David, have mercy. Son of David, have mercy on us. Over and over again until they disappeared behind that door of the house. And the next thing that they know, here comes two men out of the house. 
And they're not groping their way along any longer. They're not holding on to one another. And so what do you think the conclusion would be from everyone who saw it? Their conclusion is, the son of David had mercy on them. And they were right. He's the Messiah. He accepted that claim and he healed them because of it. And that's really kind of a key to why Jesus walked into the house and brought them into the house before he healed them. He got them alone and he told them something. And we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. But don't ever think that they went into that house with the intention that they would be healed and with the intention of getting saved. But they're only fooling about this when they said, yes, you are the Lord. Yes, you are the son of David. And so don't let any preacher ever feed you the nonsense that you can be a Christian without admitting and receiving Christ as your Lord. When you receive him as Lord, you obey him, you surrender to his will, you live by his commandments, and if there's no change in you, you didn't get saved. It's necessary for you to obey and to change from disobedience into obedience. And if that's not true, if it's not necessary for Christ to become actually the Lord of your life, then you could take the Sermon on the Mount and rip it out of your Bible because that's what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It means nothing at all. So they realized who he was, they believed who he was, and they were healed and they were saved because of it. Now, we need to go on. That that, that review is a little bit longer perhaps than what I intended, but it's fully necessary. I, I think we need to be reminded... Uh, of these truths once again. So let's go on a little bit further today. And we notice here, sixthly, the immediate transformation. Verse number 29. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were open. I think most people would read this, and they would think that, well, this is mostly talking about physical healing. Faith had given them their sight. Faith had opened their eyes, so they're no longer blind. Now they're just like you and me. I remember uh, several years ago seeing a movie about a man that had been blind for his entire life. I don't remember what the cause of the blindness was, but the doctors had discovered a way to uh, reverse that and, and to change him and to heal him from it. And so they operated on him, and he was able to see. And you would think, well, what a marvelous thing. The doctors are able to do that after all of these years without sight, and now this person is normal. But it wasn't normal for him because he'd never had sight. Uh, What happened was his sight clashed with all the other senses, and they became an annoyance to him. His perception was off. His brain really couldn't assimilate the new information. And so his eyesight became a curse to him rather than a blessing. And so what he decided to do was to go back to the blindness. I don't think that Jesus' healing was that way. When he healed, everything was put into place exactly as it should be. He restored the balance of the senses. They could see as if they could always see. It was just like perhaps they had fallen asleep and then waking up. They could see just like a normal person. All their senses were just like they were supposed to be. Now, the fellow that I'm telling you about, he would have gotten healed and fallen out the door because he wouldn't know what he was, what he was looking at. But not these men. They, they were healed, and it was as natural as if they'd never been without sight for a split second. But was that healing, is that really the essential part of why we have this story. Well, really, it's not. And we've already discussed that Jesus had enough compassion to heal people without admission of his kingship. 
There were many people healed, and they never said that Jesus was the Lord. Not all of them believed that he was the Messiah. And the proof of that is when you come down to the end of Jesus' ministry, after thousands of people through Israel have been healed, there weren't thousands of people following him as the Lord. Instead, they were following him and demanding that he be crucified. So here are two men that are healed, and the healing is not the most important part. Their faith is much important here in the context of the admission of his kingship and his lordship and the faith that they had for eternal salvation. And the most important thing I think that we can learn from these men is the way in which they came. Because here are men that can offer Jesus nothing. They're incapable of having performed any great works for God. They've not received any sacraments, as some people say you must have. They'd never done any penance. They came in faith and with its twin grace, repentance from their sin. So they recognized who he was. They recognized who they were. They were beneath and he's above. They're sinners and he's the Savior. They needed help. He's the holy God who can help them. According to your faith, be it unto you. And the same thing is true of every single person here today. If you are going to be saved, it's going to be according to your belief that Christ is able to open spiritually blinded eyes and to deliver you from death and hell. Titus 3 verse 5 says, Paul writes, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So they were saved, they confessed him by calling him Lord, and they were immediately transformed from lost sinners into the kingdom of God. So he touched them. Now they're seeing citizens, they're whole citizens, reclaimed physically and spiritually for God's kingdom. Now let's see what happens next. Verse number 30 says, And their eyes were opened, And Jesus charged them straightly, see that no man know it. Now, that's a quite odd statement for Jesus to say, isn't it? His very first command to them as their their new Lord and their king is don't tell anybody what happened. And this is not a suggestion. It says he straightly charged them. This means that, that he sternly told them with all gravity and seriousness. He looked into those eyes that were before blind. He peered right into their eyes and he said, don't tell anybody about it. Well, that's the strangest thing, isn't it? Why would he tell them not to tell anyone? Well, we can go back to chapter 8 and we find the same kind of statement that's made. Jesus had healed a leper. And in verse number 4 of chapter 8, Jesus said, See thou tell no man. He said, Don't tell anybody about it. Why couldn't he tell? Well, he was a leper. He had to follow all of the proper procedures concerning the Mosaic law. He can't go tell anybody. The law demands that he receive the declaration of a priest. That's what the Mosaic law said. He he was healed. If he was healed, uh, he'd have to have a priest declare that. A priest has to say, well, you're healed, and now you can go back to normal society. And going to the priest was a, a, a very important aspect of that because not only did it fulfill the law, but Jesus wanted those priests to know that he had healed. And the priest would have to admit a miracle has occurred here. Jesus has done a miracle. And that's something those pharisaical priests didn't want to do. 
So we understand the reasoning in that. that. That was all a function of the ceremonial law. Jesus hadn't yet been crucified, and so that meant all of those Old Testament ceremonies that they went through, all of that's still in effect. And Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. He says, I came to fulfill it. But we don't have that here. The reasoning here is different. Blind people are not ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. They're never told to go to a priest. They're never told to do that in order to be declared clean and whole. So what's the reason that Jesus told these men not to tell? Well, some say that, well, Jesus didn't want people to know that he was a miracle worker. You know, I have a much better suggestion. Stop healing people. If you don't want anybody to know you're a miracle worker, start, stop healing them. It's already too late for that because the 8th chapter, verse number 16, says he healed everybody that came. Nobody was refused. So as soon as these blind guys walked out of the, out of the house, people were going to know it. They, they had been healed. They didn't grab their canes and feel along pretending that they couldn't see so they could fool everybody. No, they walked out of the house as normal as they could be. So why did Jesus tell them this? Well, let's back up to a moment for a moment what I said earlier. All the way to the house, they kept repeating this, Son of David, Son of David, Son of David. And what they're doing there is they're proclaiming the kingship of Christ. But this is not the appropriate time for that. If you remember, it's the declaration of his kingship that got him nailed to the cross. What was the accusation that was made against him? They said about him, he says that he's the king. But Caesar is our king. So it's not the time for the cross here. Uh, There's still more ministry to be done. There's still much teaching to be done before the cross. The disciples have to be trained. And so Jesus didn't need people trying to make him a king right then. He never intended to establish an earthly kingdom right then. And if he had done that, then there would have never been a cross. And if he had done that, there's no sacrifice for sins. And all of, you, all of us here today, we're dying and going to hell because Jesus wouldn't have paid for our sins. So he told these men, don't talk about it. Don't tell anybody. This is not the time. So that's the very first command that he gives these men as they enter into the spiritual kingdom. But wouldn't you know it, they're like a lot of Christians today. They don't pay very much attention. They have a better way of serving God than God's way. So what did they do? Well, next we see the unfaithful declaration. Verse 31, But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame into all that country. So the very first thing they did was to go out and do exactly what Jesus told them not to do. Keep that in mind because uh, we've got other messages to deal with where we have the command that Lord The Lord says, you must be my witnesses. You must tell people about me. But let me just briefly say about this. You can never condone disobedience. When it looks like you have a better way of doing things in God's way and you disobey him because you think the end justifies the means, that's when a good thing turns into a bad thing. It's good to tell people about Christ, but the method that you use can be a bad thing. It's a good thing to go out and preach on the street about Christ, but it's a bad thing to disgrace the Lord by acting like a fool when you do it. It's a good thing to invite people to come to church, but it's a bad thing that many ministries today do where they tape dollar bills under bus seats and give people a prize when they come to church. 
It's a good thing to get people to come to church, but it's a bad thing to have a variety show on the stage when you get them there. It's a good thing to sing praises to God, but it's a bad thing to use the world's music and call it God's music when you do it. Now, these men disobeyed doing the exact thing that Christ told them not to do. And so what looks like a good thing turns into a bad thing because they didn't do God's work God's way. Jesus said, if a man loves me, he will keep my commandments. Now, thankfully, it's not all bad because next we see the grateful mobilization. Verse 32 says, and they went out and behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. So at least we do see some good from these two blind men. They weren't just two ungrateful guys that God saved, and so they skipped out of the house, and they said, we got ours. We can see now. That's good enough for us. That's all that counts. And there are a lot of Christians that are like that. Recently, we put out a plea for people to help in our outreach program. And there are people in the church that say, I'm too busy for that. I got mine. I'm in the kingdom of God. I'm good to go, so I'm just going to sit here and wait for Jesus to come. These two guys weren't like that. They stepped out of the house, and the first thing that they do is they remember a friend who can't speak. They have a friend who's possessed with a devil. A devil had shut his mouth, and the word actually also means there that he was deaf. So you have two blind guys that are friends with a fellow who's deaf and dumb. I don't know how a friendship like that ever got started have no clue as to how they ever met, how they communicated with each other, how they could get along. But they knew this guy. And so they went to get him, and they brought him to Jesus. Well, deafness, that, that's a common disease like blindness. Only this guy didn't become deaf and dumb because of disease. He was deaf and dumb because of a demon. So this is not an issue for doctors. This is not a medical issue. You can't go get medicine to cure this. A demon cause this but demons are never a never a problem for jesus go back to the end of the eighth chapter and we studied that part and there you see a man when we got through all of that here was a man that probably was possessed with as many as six thousand demons and by the time jesus was through with all of that all of those demons could do was beg for mercy they couldn't do anything against jesus so the seeing men go to the deaf and the dumb man And Jesus gets rid of his demon. That's the ninth miracle in the series. And so now we see that Matthew has approached kingship from every angle. Two blind men know about the mercy. They know about the king and his kingdom. And going back to that scripture in Isaiah, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Hymn writer wrote a great hymn. He said, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. The sun gives sight and sound. So these men are persistent. They receive their healing. They receive salvation. And their immediate response to such a great blessing that God has given is to go out and get somebody and bring them also to Jesus. 
Now keep that information in mind because we're getting ready to move into another part of Jesus' ministry where he teaches people to be witnesses for the kingdom. He says, you must go out. You must tell people about me. Now there's one more important teaching that we need to see from the passage. And this is the analogy of salvation. Condition, confrontation, connection, expectation, realization, transformation, declaration, mobilization, and all of that is to get us here the great analogy of salvation. Now, you don't want to miss this because this is what the story's really all about. It's all about spiritual matters. So two blind men, they're very desperate. They have a need. And in the case of all the miracles that we've talked about, nine different settings, there's always been a desperate need. A leper has a need. A centurion has a need. A sick woman has a need. Endangered sailors on the sea have a need. A demon-possessed man has a need. A paralyzed man has a need. A man with a dead daughter has a need. A woman with an issue of blood has a need. Two blind men have a need. A deaf and dumb man have a need. So the common thread that runs through all of these miracles is the great need, the great desperation. And that's where salvation always begins. It always begins with the realization that there is something that is terribly wrong and that you're helpless to do anything about it. The need fuels the desire to seek relief. The helplessness comes from the poverty of your great spiritual condition. And if you've not reached that point, you're not ready to be saved. If you never see the need, then you're never going to ask for help. Now, what the Bible is teaching us here is that you are, I am, we all were spiritually deaf and dumb. We are all with blinded eyes spiritually. Satan has blinded people to the gospel of Christ, and he attempts to keep people that way. And you have to be willing to admit that you have a need. You have to come to the place that you realize your sinfulness. Your need is to be forgiven of sin. And when you are forgiven of sin, it takes you off the path of hell where every person is headed by their natural birth. It takes you off the path of hell and puts you on the path to heaven. And so when you have a need, you understand. You see your life hanging over this great precipice of hell, and you are ready to fall in at any moment. That's the desperate need. And when you see that, that's when you cry out for mercy. And just like two blind men, you need mercy. If your undeserving soul is to be saved from hell, from that everlasting hell, you must have mercy. Now, I know that churches all over town, they'll never talk to you about hell. And when people don't talk about hell, nobody ever discovers the need. Nobody ever knows that there's something they need to be saved from. And so what you have is what? The blind following the blind. You have to know there is a need. Now, friends, here's the thing. We want you to know about it. That's why we're telling you about it. I want you, and the members of Berean Baptist Church want you to be saved from that awful place. And when you see the need, what do you do? You come to Christ in faith. You believe that he died to save you, and then your sins are gone. You come in faith, and you say, yes, Lord, I do believe. I do confess. You are my God. You are my Savior. I trust you to take away all of my sins. That's what we call salvation. And when you do that, spiritual blindness is gone. How is it gone? 
Well, it's gone because God has opened your eyes so that you can see Christ. The Spirit has opened blinded eyes in faith and given you faith that you need to receive him. That's God's work. That's what God does. You trust Christ and you trust him alone. Now, I told you earlier, I returned to this. Miracles alone will never save anybody. Thousands of miracles were done in Israel. Jesus miraculously obliterated disease all over the country. Blind people can see, deaf people can hear, dumb people can speak, lame people can walk. But when it came down to the end, the miracles could never alone bind people to Jesus. They crucified him, and the miracles were never enough. Miracles don't save you, folks, unless you want to talk about the miracle of the new birth. Miracles don't save you. Faith in Christ alone is how you get saved. Total surrender to him is how you get saved. Giving up yourself to his lordship, that's what saves. Having your eyes opened by the Holy Spirit of God is the only way that you'll ever be saved. And you might be sitting there today and you're saying, how do I get that? How do I know when God's speaking to me? How, how do I know when God's working in my heart? And I have a very simple answer for you. If you're thinking about it right now, if you're in the, in the process of thinking about it, you're concerned about it at the moment, if you desire to know more in this moment, if you're desperate at this moment, that means that God's Spirit is speaking to your heart. You're being convicted by the Holy Spirit, and you're right at the point where your spiritual blindness can be lifted. The world says seeing is believing. And God says believing is seeing. That's the way that you see the kingdom of God. You will be saved by faith and faith alone. You enter his kingdom by faith alone. And so I want to encourage you today. If you're here and you've not received Christ, I encourage you to do this. If you are desperate enough because of your condition, you will receive him. And I trust God enough for this, that if you are desperate enough, you won't leave here without Jesus Christ. If you're not, you will. And there's a world of difference between those two positions. One is the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your heart today. God is calling you if you are right now thinking about these things. Now, in just a moment, we're going to close our services, and I, I just want to tell you, you have, you have opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior. You can do it right there where you're sitting. We have people standing by that be willing to talk with you. You can go to the back. People will be back there. I don't care if you come to the front. You can stop me at the door. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We want to help you to see Jesus. That's the most important thing, that you understand your need and you come to Jesus by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your presence now and we thank you for your word and for this story that we've read about and how merciful and compassionate that you are, that you desire to save sinners. Lord, I pray that you would open someone's heart today to see that great need. Every single person who does not know Jesus Christ is sadly on the way to an eternal hell. But we thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way that can save us from that awful place, and that is faith in your dear Son who died on the cross. Lord, we pray that you would impress that truth upon someone's heart today. Bring them to salvation. Bring Christians closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.